Joanna Harcourt Smith again, which is good and wonderful. And uh, today uh, we are speaking with Krista Lancaster and Mark Bregman, co-founders and directors of North of Eden. North of Eden is an organization of people deeply committed to their own personal work through their dreams as well as being deeply committed to bringing archetypal dream work to those who are interested in listening to their own dreams. North of Eden includes the North of Eden teacher training program. But I could say more, but I won't because I would like uh, Krista and Mark to introduce themselves. Um, well, thank you very much for having us, first of all. And um, we come from Vermont, where uh, in, over the past 35 years, um, this form of dream work has been evolving. And Mark began 35 years ago or so, um, sort of receiving the information about a, a different way of working with dreams that opens up through the feeling centers of the dream. And um, so over this time, the, uh, the sort of theoretical framework of the dream work has developed and changed and grown. And although the work is rooted in one-on-one -on -one work, we have developed a group process that um, we now uh, is flourishing, actually, at our retreat center in Vermont. So uh, something that began very much with Mark one-on-one -on -one in his office working with people um, turned into something much larger that involves groups of people. Right. About six years ago is when yeah. it really seemed to kick in. So I was working uh, basically one-on-one, -on -one and uh, yeah, I studied Carl Jung and uh, really didn't understand him. I don't think very many people really do. And in his latest book, uh, Of the Red Book, he's he talks about not really... Um, uh, wanting us to believe anything that he wrote other than what he wrote in the Red Book. So it's kind of like the way it felt. I went to college, I studied, and it didn't really make sense, but there was something going on there in his writings that I was trying to find in the dreams. And what really kicked in for me was, despite the education that I had, um, I could throw it all out because as I was facing my clients, I could feel, I actually I could hear... Uh, a voice basically telling me what to say and I of course uh, you know didn't want to because it was not the kind of thing I would say it seemed divisive and challenging but uh, unbeknownst to me it struck right to the heart of the dream in a way that I didn't understand at the time but the client did because the dream is the dreamers it belongs to the dreamer and the intention of the dream isn't for the analyst, it's for the client. But the client does not want to see or feel what's in their dream. There's a resistance to it because it's deeper than where they currently are at. But yet, if you understand what the dream really means, it touches or taps into those deeper nerves in the person where they're forced to confront things about themselves that aren't just external, they're right at the heart of how consciousness is formed. And the alchemical process that Jung talks about deals with getting into that underlying unconscious place 
where we do not know ourselves and yet where the deeper self lives. So I just followed the instruction and from there began to understand the therapy would move in a way that it it hadn't and I learned by just taking the risk of uh, saying the things that had to be said and as the decades went by I began to really understand what I was doing and why I was saying what I was saying and began to see what the intentionality of the dream really was. Bringing that into the world is a difficult thing because the way dreams are understood is more on a horizontal or intellectual level that we're looking for meanings in terms of the metaphor or the symbol of the dream. Uh, Jung never, uh, in, in the Red Book, couldn't care less about it. For him, it was about encountering the unconscious divine, which seems schizophrenic at best, um, but in reality, he really did the work. And um, I'm thrilled that that book is released because it gives credence to what I've been led to do for the last almost 40 years. So, Krista, uh, would you uh, speak about how this work has changed your own life? Oh, I'd love to do that. Um, well, I came to Vermont in uh, 1987 and found my way to this work. And I was kind of the end of my 20s and made a real hash of things and had left a marriage and arrived with a small child and knew that I had these two burning questions. What is my work? And where are my people? But I'm, you know, in the hills of Vermont, living, you know, after having lived in Paris and New York and London and uh, had a pretty glamorous life. I was suddenly with the wood stove and the backwoods and the four-wheel drive. And um, I had, I had, I had, I had crashed and burned pretty early. I was 29, and I was in a marriage with a man with another woman. You know, I was kind of on the road, hippie thing. And um, I knew that I needed something really radical, and that I had there was something about coming to Vermont which was really important. And uh, so someone handed me a card one day, and said, uh, "Call this man." So I did. I ha- you know sometimes people hand you cards, and maybe five years later you pull it out. But I called, and um, and Mark answered, and so I went to see him, and um, and I really took to this work, even though I really didn't know what it was, what was happening. I just knew that something deep inside me um, was reaching me in this way that was really different from anything I'd ever experienced before. So I had no idea what I was doing, but I kept going back. And then pretty soon I said, I want to do this work with people. And so I became an apprentice with Mark, I don't know, two or three years later. And over time have grown into working with other people and having a practice. And um, I think the thing that I have really brought to to North of Eden is is the understanding of the group process. Mm-hmm. So Mark would say, "Hey, why don't you go on this radio show, or why don't you organize a group?" And I'd be like, "Okay." And I didn't really know ever what I was doing, but I would kind of leap in. And over time, there there grew a kind of collective or a group of people in the area that we're in in Montpelier, Vermont. And lo and behold, 
a community emerged of people who were whose lives were being touched and changed by this work. So for me, I think you know my two questions were were answered. You know, I found the work of my of my life and my calling, and I found my people. And um, you know, Mark was kind of like you were in your office in the cave doing this intense one-on-one work, and my personality was more suited to bringing this group together. And um, so. So I think that's what's happened. And now we have a training institute and we have these retreats four or five times a year at our retreat center. Right, because we now apply the work to a group process so that people actually, in a small group of 10 or 11 each, work their dreams with each other, which we call string string analysis. String therapy. String. That has to be explained because um, there were a couple of people who had, had dreams because we didn't know how to work this in a group setting. How to and so there were a couple of people within the the inner circle of teachers who were training, who had dreams about working with dreams and using string, like a string from you and I. If you were the bear in my dream, Beautiful. there would be a string. Mm-hmm. And so it was literally, there was a connection, or if there was a connection to some darker side, the evil man or woman or yeah the dark mother entering up to stage left there would be a string to her yes so anyway it's and if there wasn't any kind of a connection there'd be no string right so it was a visual way to see how the because you would cluster three dreams together in one play and use Mm -hmm. the people in the group to play those roles but for but to actually to understand what was going on by having those strings in play would give you a place to know where the, the dreamer was attached to or connected to something versus not good or ill. And so by opening it up in this way, this really, right. the unconscious opens up again. So as this is enacted and people jump into different roles and play the different parts of one person's dream, of course new things emerge. So it became this really um, spontaneous and exciting way that people could really... Live out the dream. Live out the dream. And, right. you know, whether you're a part or whether it's the dream or it's your dream, there's something for you there. There's this new material. So we evolved this five-day retreat in which, within these small groups of ten, each person had their time, say, the morning, for their set of dreams. And so it's like entering into one person's psyche, one, one mm-hmm. person at a time. So by the end of that five days, everyone is sort of cracked open, and there's also like a joy or playfulness that emerges because people come down to the sort of essence of who they are. Yes. And it's through, it's to be mentioned, through facing into the dark part of themselves. It's not... It's not where you just go to the light, the light is underneath what is not acceptable by the person. Mm-hmm. And the psyche, of course, by giving the dream, is, is inviting you to go into the dark places and places that your ego is formed in a way that doesn't allow it to go deeper than, than that point. So you, you have to, in a way, uh, take a risk. And the people that do the work um, learn to take those risks. And so the unconscious, instead of becoming this difficult, resilient entity, it be, just it opens up, it becomes porous and vacuous, and you fall into it, and it comes back up. And 
you become part of this incredible thing that emerges. But it's a tough fight. It's more advanced work. Because when you first start out, everybody's attached to what they think they know is themselves. And the dream world, it tends to challenge you to look past it to something else. Well, it's interesting because uh, last night uh, I dreamt that Oprah came to my house and uh, with two or three other people with camera and everything to uh, um, do an interview with me. And um, so it's it's interesting because somebody from your center mentioned that there was a man who uh, had written a book which included your work. So right. would either of you or both of you speak about that? Well, Roger. About Roger. Well, Roger Kamenetz wrote the book, um, The History of Last Night's Dream. And um, he then went on to Oprah's radio show and was interviewed by Oprah. Um, and he spoke about this work. And so many people have, have heard that um, interview and found their way to us. Right. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tense moment there with Oprah. She had a dream? Well, yes, I mean, that's the thing. As you know, people often offer a dream very casually, and she offered it. And then it was really a difficult dream that would have meant confronting something difficult about herself. Wow. And um, Roger bravely entered into that and, um, and did confront her. And I guess all the staff were backstage, you know, aghast. But, um, you know, it's sort of this wonderfully um, egalitarian thing about dreams is that nobody is exempt from that sort of laser point of truth, that the dream, each dream is wanting, has an intentionality that wants us to look at the thing that is keeping us from becoming who we really are. And a lot of those truths are uncomfortable truths about the ways that we hide or defend or protect. And so suddenly Oprah was being confronted in her show. And I don't, she wasn't very happy about it. No. The first layer we call stage one is when stage one dreams tend to confront the person yeah. with things that, not just what they're doing, but it's the way in which it covers up deeper feelings and a deeper reality and um, so it's, when you first engage the, the work it's not fun it's difficult because the, the archetypal world doesn't engage the ego, it only engages mm-hmm. what has been repressed which is what we call the child self or the soul self or essence or essence of the self and so to crack the person open you've got to get be beyond what the assumption of the self is. So it's not about good or bad. You can be a marvelously wonderful person, but that can all be kind of a shell of another broken side of a self or a more vulnerable self that really is what was created in the first place. And then we adapt to the world and we learn how to be, move around in it mm-hmm. successfully or, or not. not. Right. In a, in, a, in a caring way or an uncaring way, but it's still a shell. So I think we get really attached to what's good in us and what's bad in us, and the dreams don't care about what you think is good about you. It only cares that you go deeper. So that's um, 
terrifying for a lot of people because deeper means feeling things that we would rather not. But the dreams are persistent and it's not up to the analyst to point the way, which is great. It's the dream that actually takes you through. So if you want, I could tell you more about how that shift for me from hitting this place, because I think that the illustration of that is helpful. I would like that. Yeah, because so, it makes it more real, so I can talk about the hash that yes. I had in my life. And so I was in this menage a trois, and I, you know, and I had a small child, and so I arrive in Vermont, and I go and, and see Mark, and my dreams immediately point to my part in this drama. Of course, mm-hmm. I come in saying, can you believe this man and what happened and this woman? Blame, blame, blame. Blame, 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 and I'm the victim, and, you know, like, how could this be? And, and the dream was just saying, this is what you have done. You have given your power away to this man. And this woman in the menage a trois is a reflection of the unlived woman that you are. She was incredibly creative and, you know, sensual. And I was kind of like the stiff, martyred mother. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of, in a way, reveling in that. Because that was safe for me to be the stiff, martyred mother. Because that was my legacy of British kind of colonial women being stiff and martyred while the men were off charging around in Africa and India. So I had recreated my ancestral pattern. And I was, you know, with the charming, handsome artist husband and the younger woman, and there I was. And I was only 24, and yet I was the hag. <laughs> it was like really upsetting. And then to come in and have the dreams say, you've got to see where you have fallen into this. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, like, you know, my personality that Mark is talking about, like the, my presentation. And believe me, I had the, like, the charming, able to deal with the world thing down. But there was something in me that heard this really difficult thing that I was going to have to let go of blaming these people that were outrageously bad that they had taken. She had taken my husband. So it was like a really, really dramatic way of seeing because I had created something, you know, kind of outrageous. And I could have gotten elicited a lot of sympathy, and I did, you know. Right. If I was on my own and didn't have the dream, I would. You know, I said, oh, yeah, you know, and support and all that. And you would just do it again somewhere else. But uh, that's not change. Change means not support it, but really looking at the truth. So it's difficult. It was difficult to go through. So why didn't you then there just... Bag out of there. I don't know. I just, because because of the level of my soul that heard the truth, Mm -hmm. however hard it was. That's what dreams can do, because they're for you. They're, They're... the exact thing that you might hear. Right. If you, if if I help to reveal the dream in a correct way, where she gets to feel the truth of the dream, not me just interpreting it, then she gets to feel her soul beseeching her to look and start moving down into itself. So let me just uh, ask this. So perhaps dreams are the expression of the soul where the ego doesn't get in the way. Uh, is this what you... I would agree with that, yeah. Yes? Yeah. Fortunately, it's like something where the ego can't mess. So we might have a life at night or during a siesta. To balance out all the lies in the day-to-day life. True. But the goal ultimately isn't just to break us down to that. It's to bring us into relationship with 
what Jung called the archetypes, which mm-hmm. are actual... I mean, people have a lot of words for them in cultures, you know, but they're living beings, uh, whether you call them gods or goddesses or guides or... The uh, you, whether Yeah, you know, but... Um, the bigger issue is that these archetypes confront you, engage you, involve themselves with you if you're willing to go to deeper feelings. And the deeper you go in your feelings, the more accessible you are to them. And those relationships form the basis for what is the, the point of the work, which involves something beyond anything that I would know about for that person. So you've worked with a lot of people, both of you, with uh, their day life, let's say, and their soul life. What do human beings aspire to? You mean in their dreams? Um, or in their in, everyday life? In their lives, assisted by their dreams. Well, see, that's the problem. It doesn't work that way. Great. Most people would like to believe that what they do and all the good things that they do is supported in some way in the spiritual, deeper realm. Because we all have a belief, I think most of us, in in the divine. And we'd like to believe that we're in harmony, you know, that God is on our side, or somehow we're doing the right thing. So to be confronted in your dreams by saying that, no, that's not it. Yes, that's nice you did that, but that's not it. Doesn't give us that nice place to stand on that we pat ourselves on the back about. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that what we're doing is invalid, but it means that we're not conscious. We're not awake, really, to a deeper awareness of being, of ourselves. It's hard to put into words, but it's not enough to know the truth. You, in the dream realm, you have to become the truth. So I Well said. So, Krista, what did well, you... Well, what I'm kind of popping with is, yes. is that I think that longing to know to find the the self that can know uh, a state of love to know is maybe underneath people's presenting reasons for beginning this work you know for sure like you might ask why do this work it sounds really hard yeah you know and it and it, and it is it's not for the faint hearted because it is this confrontation with who you think you are and I, but I just with all the people I've worked with, it's, it all it does at some point come down to this longing to know that that's inside. That's inside to know that wants to know love. Yeah. But the irony of it is that the ego doesn't want to be loved, and everybody will swear, "Yes, I want to be loved. Yes, I want." But when the dreams bring you into confluence or into confrontation with animus, which is the principle of love or anima, most people, no matter how much they may want it or think they have it, run and are scared to really face into that because it's not the love that you and me would know as love where we're caring and we're supportive and we feel some degree of attraction and, and so forth. It's a love that we don't generally understand or feel that obliterates everything that has been compensated for the lack of it. And it's hard because we don't even know it even exists. It's yeah, I remember this dream that I had where I went from 
wherever I was living, like some city, and I got on a train, and I went into this other realm, and there I met this man who, with whom I felt this ineffable love that I had never known. And I remember that dream. It was like I had to travel. I had never known this love in my worldly life. I couldn't have, in the life of growing up and moving through the world, I had never touched into that love. So the dream, I probably don't remember that dream, but I was actually had to go to another world on the train. Mm-hmm. And there it was. So for me, it was very much learning about this state of love from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Like it was not related to anything that I had known in my life. So, a little bit more of the story, Krista. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, How it went along. So, you were, you were blaming, and you, but yeah. you really felt that you wanted to do this work. Right. So, I, I, had to, I had to face that I had given myself away, and what was underneath that was this incredible pain, and also the numbness of how could I have lived in this painful situation in this menage a trois for four years because I wasn't feeling. And so for several years, my, that work was about the child who was my son coming in my dreams and taking me to all kinds of bodies of water, rivers and oceans. And he was always like jumping into dark, scary water and asking me to jump after him. And, mm-hmm. you know, over that time, I remember for three or four years, it was all about going into the water and and learning to breathe underwater and learning to live in a different way and where my feelings were actually um, an active part. They became an active part of my life rather than... I mean, I really grew up with this stiff uh, upper lip British colonial tradition. So that combined with um, my, the personality that I had developed, it was really that I, I was simply living out this old story and... So in the first few years of this work, I was um, that the layers of feeling were unfreezing, and so I was learning about what it was to have a heart that was actually beating and to live according to um, to feeling rather than the structure or the rules of the culture that I grew up in. So as I went along, I um, you know I was growing, but I I didn't really see anything ahead. I never really saw where I was what this was opening up into so I could just I was so scared I was a very scared person Mm -hmm. and um, also very shame ridden and uh, so you know there's only so much you can see when you're living between that kind of terror and and shame and so I was just living this little life and I remember um you saying to me, do you really think this is all there's going to be? And I thought it was great. I wasn't living with the abusive husband in the menage a trois. I was living in my little cozy house. I had my son. You know, things were moving along. So over the years, my life has grown and developed and, you know, I have had to step into this place of power as a woman and a teacher that I never wanted. I always loved to find men that I could hide behind exactly and that was really convenient because then and then when things weren't good I could just blame them so I had a couple of rounds of that (laughs) it continued for a little bit it continued for a while I had to repeat it again with the second husband and the German one (laughs) 
Mark, could you uh, speak more about the archetypes? Well, obviously, when I was hearing those voice, it was animus. I mean, what Jung would call animus. You can call it a lot of other things. The, How did you know these voices were not your conditioning? Well, uh, my own history was that I've always been, like I had been in my whole life, uh, a malcontent. I never fit in in the society. I loved when we had the hippies because I could be a hippie. <laughs> and pretty soon I was a malcontent of that. I uh-huh. didn't want that either because I saw that that wasn't deep enough or something. And I was always looking for for the divine, for God, for the truth behind the world. I just always had that in me to do. And I was also a person that lived out my crime. That is to say, I wasn't a goody person. I was, I, I did the things that I would regret later, knowingly, knowing that I was wrong. So I kind of lived out a lot of my stuff overtly and at the same time searching for something else. So I kind of wasn't the kind of person that could trick myself about what was good because I wasn't looking to be good. It was a shock when I was when this voice came to me. It wasn't anything I could relate to. Now, of course, what if it was something dark or evil or a part of my personality? Pe- people do get lost in voices that are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jung calls it ear whisperers. Yeah. And we all have them. And they, te- they generally are demons or liars. They're not part of... The, the, the truth I guess I could say I, I can't answer it more than just I was lucky and or I was I mean I think all of us or many of us encounter the divine at some point and in almost every case the person says they get scared they say no way mm-hmm. it's almost like when the devil comes to you you're kind of glad because it relates, it doesn't come to you with mm-hmm. horns, it comes to you with something that you like. Something seductive. Right. I didn't yeah. like this, but I've been looking for this for, I was still only 22, but I was looking for it for maybe older, maybe 25. So looking for it for a long time, and then it sought me out. And so I was terrified, but overjoyed. And um, so, and then it, I took a risk. I had nothing else to lose. I didn't have much of a life. And... You listened. I listened. And I did what it wanted. And 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 I, and I without knowing. But now I know. And now I see him in other people's dreams. I understand how he's trying to reach everybody. Um, and... Who's he? Uh, what Jung calls him, animus. Oh, okay. But why is it to him? There's also an anima. Okay. And they're actually the same. They're, mix, they're a mixture, androgynous, mm-hmm. or her, her hermaphroditic. But the thing is, is people, they relate to their sex. But in the archetypal world, it's, it's not like that. It's both. Exactly. You're, you're really both. Yeah. And hormonally we get messed up as we get identified with the different ones and over-attached. But 
in the archetypal realm, you're you're really both. And children come as boys and girls. And if you're over, you have too much of the male side going, then the girl's the one that comes. If you have not yeah, enough of the male, the boy's the one right. that comes. Many men in this work go through an extraordinary passage of the girl, of, of learning to become the girl, and in their dreams literally having a vagina and learning what it is, actually, to be a girl. So... It's, it's extraordinary. It's whatever it is that... It needs to balance you and bring yeah. you deeper into your vulnerability. Speak more, Krista, about the uh, balance of gender. Okay, this seems to be my question that comes up. Um, well, how should I talk about that? Should I talk about um, for myself? I mean, I'm trying to think of Perhaps about, for yourself and yeah. also a few examples of how okay. you see it happening for Yeah, people. for other people. Okay. Well, for myself, I would say that uh, I had to know... Uh, I would have to know more about that male principle in myself. And so for me, it was a, this journey for many years of, of the boy and becoming in relationship with the animus and finding out what it is in me. So let me, let me just add, to, I want to add yeah. to your story that men for you were, was part of a projection that, that, right. that you had a negative understanding of men, especially the men that you were attracted to. Right. I'm sure a lot of women So there was that. a lot that, <laughs> right, that had to get straightened out there for me to be a woman in relationship to that within myself that was the uncorrupted masculine. So that was a that's a, that was a big that's a big piece wow. of work to do. Yep. So um, so that that looked like the animus coming to me in various different ways as men, from Woody Allen to like usually funny Jewish men, and uh, and to to bring out that in me to find so that I could find my way in relationship and to emerge with myself as a woman and learn to trust. Gosh, <laughs> what a concept! <laughs> yes, and to learn how to trust that men could be trustworthy, and that I could trust that which is in myself, the male within me, and to trust the animus, and to tr- yeah, to trust love in this way. But recently, what has happened for me has all been about the girl, sort of a much deeper level of of essence, which has to do with the girl, and. Uh, she has been all summer since Mark and I got together. So you should know. Ah. After many years, twenty-one of being a student and then being co-teachers and co-founders. Unethical. And unethical. Of immoral. Well, Taboo. Immoral. Yes. <laughs> Taboo. Let's go. So yeah. So we yeah. So finally, we weren't married to other people, which took a long time. So mm-hmm. we were colleagues, and our roles were changing, and we were merging into this mutuality, and then. And never flirting, and never... No, being perfect. Being perfectly appropriate. Yes, very appropriate. And repressing everything that might be inappropriate, so totally that we were convinced. Did you dream about each other? Well, that was the problem. Right. (laughs) In the last year, it was like... In the last year, it got out of hand. So there were a lot of dreams, and so... I'd say, well, I had this dream about you, but it has nothing to do with you. This oh. is just about the animus. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, we're not going to talk about this mm-hmm. because we were naked in a hotel room in New York right. City. And, right. you know, so, so finally, Mark was not married recently. Mm-hmm. He got 
disengaged from being married. And um, th- and the next week he asked me if I would like to go for dinner. So um, I would say this is a part of the story because, um, you know, clearly he's a man who has, uh, you know, a strong a strength and a power. And for me to have grown from the terrified, shame-ridden girl in the menage a trois living in the backwoods of Morrisville to being able to um, be in relationship is probably the biggest sort of testimony to how, what I had to grow into in myself and what I had to let go of and what I had to learn about mm-hmm. my distortion, about my misconceptions about men and power. I mean, I just had such a negative kind of thing that I came in with about male power and being subservient as a woman. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to have grown through this partnership because it gave me a lot of space and total respect because you you had great respect for me. So it gave me this incredible way that wasn't a sexual or romantic relationship to grow into um, being able to to teach and um, partner together in this world. Right. Partnership and friendship and respect and and it, it, it's it, it's a tricky thing because it sounds like it can sound like well, if you have a relationship with your analyst, the analyst has all the power right. in that relationship, mm-hmm. and so it can look like you're doing the very same thing, right? If to the audience, so I just want to say what's obvious. But you were just speaking about the fact that. It doesn't look like what it looks like in the dream life. And and if you live your dream life, then you, then you, then you can come at things in a different way, so that you don't get caught in those projections and transferences, and relate to each other in a in a in a very different way. And I think that's what Krista and I are embarking on, and have always had. And we've just put it together. So the way that it is interesting in terms of the group and the organization, the community, is that things have totally shifted since we got together in this different way. Because there is a there is a way that the work leads you into relationship with the self that can be in relationship on an inner level, but also how to be in relationship from a real place in yourself with another. So there's something that has shifted within the community in all the relationships has been, there has been this sort of big shifting and changing systemic it's t- yeah totally right. systemic and the question initially was about the gen- gender girl boy right and this is how it it changed because if you hadn't changed it because all the work you're about there's so too many places to, to look at it but from the standpoint we're talking about with the girl emerging um, suddenly. Right. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because there's yes. this incredible power with this girl. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. you might say that we were talking about it with the animus that this is sort of male-centered, but really underneath it all, it is this girl who is the powerhouse in the archetypal realm. And everyone is something... The Valkyrie. Yes, it's like this emergent... It's really like underneath everything, mm-hmm. as time has gone on, this feminine power that has been so suppressed is really in both men and women what wants to be heard. And so I started having these dreams once we got together in August of the girl because finally I was in a relationship where 
there was a place for her to be received. It makes me cry, but yes, um, like it, had, it was never the right time. Yeah. Like it took like it took like a a, compl- a coming together of you meeting me there and wanting that girl and knowing her like he knew her yes. like we had known her before in different lifetimes right. and that she then would be safe enough and protected enough Beautiful. to emerge without being crushed yes. by the sort of dominating culture that I mean did want to crush this this energy sure. and this incredible wisdom sure. so we've just been in this time and it's pretty amazing to talk about it in public, because I don't think we have. I'm surprised really. we are actually. I'm amazed that we are here, but it's it's really the thing that is um, that is emerging. That is like the really the deep healing part of this work that has taken 40 years for her. The time and the you know the intersection of time and culture and your growth. It's and transpersonal. Exactly. Your relationship is transpersonal. Right. So she's emerging which, now. Which brings me in our. Um, Last uh, eight minutes, let's talk about, if you wish, about the center Mm. and how this uh, slow, slow union that has been created through you uh, is going to, or is, helping people, the people who work through the center and the people who will come to the center. That's a great question. Well, I think we're only just at the beginning, I think is the question. We have 30 or four people, 30 or 40 people who are students of this work. And then they work with different people. And we all work with people who, who are in different places in this country and in, in Europe. And we're just, we just began the center right. this mm. summer, like mm. in teaching, in putting this work into a form that can be taught and of course it's always experiential and so the personal work of each person who sets out to learn this work is the driving force and so we're trying to create a conceptual framework within which a person who's interested in this work and learning it can grow so the center is really dedicated to the unfolding of this work in each person and we're finding our way with how to teach that right we have uh five books okay. and more coming out uh, and we most of the sessions are over the phone because people are all over the world so we we find the phone sessions work really well and people can come to the retreats in yeah person. people come together so they're working sort of right. in this way all over the place and then they come together with 60 people at a time in this very very intimate setting in the mountains of Vermont and so so the one on one work then gets placed into a group and then back to one-on-one. So the the center really is a center? It actually is a physical center, yes. We're a huge building on a mountain. We have 48 beds and it's a huge, wonderful building. So we have that and then in Montpelier, which is the capital of Vermont where we live, we do classes on a weekly basis. And so there's sort of a center there. There's this ongoing training and learning that's happening, and we do video classes, audio video conferencing. Right. So you could take the, take the class and be any anywhere in the world on uh, Skype and the, the, the new ways that, that you can see be alive any anywhere in the world, as you probably know. So your website is called North of Eden. 
Militaryvegan.com. Militaryvegan.com. Yes. One, one word. Okay. Now, um, what I would love to hear is both of you extending an invitation to people. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I think the, the best thing to do is to go to our website at um, northofeden.com and explore uh, there the writings of all kinds of teachers and students who are involved in this work. It's an incredible resource because people are very honest about their journeys. And so you heard a little bit of mine, but you can really get into the juicy details of all different folks. And they're a really creative bunch of people. So they're artists and musicians and poets and dancers and, and plumbers and restaurant owners and all different kinds of people who were drawn to this work. And I think it gives the best sense of what happens in people's lives when they start listening and having this conversation with the inner realm of their dreams. And then within the website also, it shows how to find our books, how to go to Amazon and click and get them, and also lots of details about the retreats. So I think anyone who... The invitation would be that I would want to extend is anyone who has felt like they have been seeking for a long time and are wanting to break through the obstacles that are keeping them from knowing the heart of their soul that wants to know the divine and that this work is for people who are willing to confront what they don't need anymore and what is uncomfortable and uh, and I would agree with with that. That's the point. I mean, if you may come to the work feeling like, well, I don't care about all that stuff. I'm just having a miserable time here. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to even believe in anything <laughs> to start the work. Because we don't proselytize anything. It's in your dreams. You, you learn what you learn. So there's no spiritual um, bias you could be uh, any person who believes whatever you believe it's the dream's job to work with you and not our job to define what spirituality is so even though we have been in this position of defining to some extent what our experience is it isn't to say that your experience is going to be a different one or that you have to believe this to do this work that's the great thing about it. Everybody has dreams. And in that sense, everybody's called to change. So I would hope that the audience doesn't believe that, well, they believe this, so therefore they're going to bias the dream mm-hmm. so that they'll, you know, it's not like yeah. that really. No, it's a really specific and to personal that person. and unique and, they, and if they end up believing something else, I don't care. I don't believe in anything but their journey and their work. I hope that doesn't get lost in our, ex, our explanations that we have an agenda and we're going to, you know, because the dream will make sense to you in a deep way and it won't be because we've told you, it'll be because you feel the truth of a particular piece of work and that unfolds to the next piece of work and so forth. Okay, and I suppose there's also a lot of play at the center. 
I think, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they have a lot of music and, yeah, it's like camp, you know, in the evening because people open up and they want to share it's, what they do. It's because everybody it's knows each other on a, in the most place where you'd never know a person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, they get to know each other, like, you would never reveal the depth of who you are except through the dream and the exploration of it and then you're exposed. So everybody around is exposed mm-hmm. and they just, like, let go and... It's really great to be with folks that are just like, there's no pretense. It's just you're just stripped into wherever your work is. You could be in a happy place, or you could be in a really dark, night of the soul place, but there's a lot of love for Real support. might be the word. Yeah. R E A. Yeah. North of Eden, the place of no pretense. I like that, Joanna. I like that too. Well, I want to thank you so much. It's a privilege that you wanted to come out here and do this. And um, thanks for having me. Welcome to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thank you. you so much, Joanna. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.